Welcome to episode number 45 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. On this episode of The Thermal, a feature interview with longtime American contest pilot Chip Bearden. Chip is the author of Goodbye Papa Golf. It's an autobiography about Chip's life as a contest glider pilot, marathon runner, tech entrepreneur, and family man. It's written in a way that's fascinating for glider pilots, but it's also a good read for those not necessarily interested in aviation. I spoke to Chip earlier this week. He was in New York City visiting his daughter, so don't be surprised when you hear sirens in the background. Hey Chip, thanks for coming on to talk about your book. You're welcome. It's an honor. So gliding has obviously brought you great joy and also tragedy. Talk to me about what made you decide to write about it all. Well, I guess it's a complicated answer. Uh, In the simplest terms, it started the night of the accident that I discuss in great detail in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew I would start to forget things. And as I mentioned in the book, I went down, went back to the hotel room that night and I tried to write down everything I could remember about the flight. Mm -hmm. And that's something I advise anyone who's witnessed an accident to do, because no matter how careful you are and how smart you are and how good your memory is, you're going to forget things. Your mind is going to play tricks on you. And even the next day, what you think you remember is not going to reflect what accurately happened. So that's when I wrote it down the first time. And then for the next couple of years, I basically expanded it into what I was hoping would be an article because I felt like I'd experienced something that I wanted to share with people Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. And it got to the point where I I was happy with the article, but it was too big to publish. Um, George Moffat, among many other people, read it and said, you know, this is great stuff, but it's it's just too long for any magazine. And and George Moffat, for those who don't know, was a, a, a big figure in American gliding. Yes, twice world champion, many time U.S. national champion. Um, probably one of the most revered um, gliding pilots and uh, students of how to fly fast. But he was also I, an I English could, prof or something, right? He was an English uh, teacher and a uh, private boys school, uh, later co-ed school in New Jersey, the Pingree School. Right. So very, very well educated, very well spoken, well written. And um, he looked at it and said, this is this is wonderful stuff. He said, you'll never get it published. So you have a choice about cutting it dramatically. And he gave me some hints. He said, or, you know, expand it and maybe it'll make a nice small book. Which is what you did. So I, <laughs> I went a little further. Um, at that point, what's part two of the book was really this article. And there are five parts now. And I, I put some things about my earlier years and then – Obviously, it's been about 15 or 20 years since I, right. I wrote that article. A lot's happened since then. And when so, I sat down to try to put it all together, that's how I ended up writing the book. A little bit of context. You're in your 70s now. You said you're 72, I think. I'm 72, yes. Right. And you've been flying for 60 years, just about? Uh, it will be 60 years in about a year and a half, I guess. Right. I, I soloed uh, in October of 1965. Right. Wow. Now, the title of your book, Goodbye Papa Golf references what you just talked about earlier on was this this accident um and this is pretty well the the most critical part of the book and i didn't really realize what it was about until i got into it talk talk to our audience about this accident your father give us the story 
Well, I feel like I'm, I'm spoiling things, but since most people I know in Soaring know about my father and what happened, I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Um, my dad was, was always interested in flying, didn't have the money to do it when he was young and, and just married, and discovered Soaring about 1960 and got into it in a big way. And he was and a World War II vet, right? He was, yeah. Um, finally got his pilot's license in the early 50s, but he didn't have the money to really do anything with it. So it wasn't until around 60 or 61 that he got involved in soaring, and that was that was his ticket to fly. He, he loved soaring, got into it in a big way. So when I got to be 14 years old, he said, do you want to take flying lessons? And I never evidenced the slightest interest in actually flying myself mm-hmm. until that moment. <laughs> so I soloed and developed some mild, modest aptitude for it. And um, continued with it. And then in a few years, he said, hey, why don't you fly your first contest? And that was the thing. That was the, my ticket to um, all kinds of, of things that were important to me at the time. Self-esteem, confidence. Um, I, I talk about it at great length in the book. But Yeah, it really got the hook. You really got hooked when you started really flying contests. It really set the right? hook, not because I had always wanted to be a pilot, but because being a competition pilot, gave me a sense of, I guess, as a lot of us in Soaring do, it made me feel special. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It made me feel like, I won't say one of the elite, but a, one of the brotherhood of, of Soaring pilots, not not to use a sexist term there. No, but, but that's a um, good, good way to describe it. There, there is a, a brotherhood slash sisterhood in, the, in our yes. community. Yeah. And then after that, it was, um, it sort of built on itself. He and I started doing contests together. I did a bunch of regionals. He had always wanted to fly the Nationals and and sort of backed away from it because a friend of his had tried it in the mid-60s and had a terrible experience, finished almost dead last. And um, as I came up the ladder pretty quickly, he finally said, hey, the Nationals are up in Bryan, Ohio, which was not far from where we were living in Cincinnati, Ohio. Why don't you? Why don't we enter you in the first 50-meter Nationals? We had a 201 LaBelle, which was standard class, so it was a little bit of a reach, but um, – I was actually the first of the two of us to fly nationals. And then mm-hmm. we began doing it together. Uh, and that led to flying in 77 with two 201 LaBelles. And then um, we picked up an LS3, ordered a new one. In 79, we both flew um, U.S. nationals, 15 meters. He and an ASW20 that we had a part ownership and I and the LS3 that we owned. But you and, you then, and your dad were – I mean, you guys were buddies at this point. You're older, you, you know, you're not, it's not father-son so much anymore as two pilots who love hanging out together, right? Right. I have to admit it, it started off as, is, I guess, a lot of, hopefully a lot of father-son relationships are a hero worship in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, as I explain in the book, I, I lived in his shadow for a long time. Yeah. And uh, soaring was something that allowed me to emerge. So, yeah, we became soaring buddies. I mean, he was always... My mentor, even when I began to rise above his level competitively, he was still my mentor. Right. Um, we talked about flying a lot. Sometimes I think my family felt like that. That's all we talked about. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the dinner table on family vacations. Hey, it's hard not to. <clears throat> it's hard not to. But just imagine you were, uh, you've been to uh, vintage sailplane meets and, and contests and so forth. Just imagine you're with your buddy – 24-7. <laughs> um, 
and you both have a love of soaring at that point and yeah. an obsession with it, it's um, it literally became dinner table conversation. So yeah, we were we were more than just uh, father son. We were we we're soaring buddies. And, and and your your brother and sister are also into gliding, from what I gather, right? They both soloed. My brother flew competitively for a while. Neither one is active right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Diane uh, soloed. And um, after the accident, I think she, a couple years later, she decided she really needed to finish the training that my father had started with her. So she soloed and put it away, although she's crewed a lot since then, both right. for me and for other pilots. My brother um, also got into it in a much bigger way after uh, after the accident. And so- – uh, he, he's, he flew privately for about, I don't know, five or six years. So l- let's talk about that accident. So set it up for us. What were you flying? What was your dad flying? Contest day. Just, uh, yeah, t- tell it us was, that uh, story. Right. It was in Springfield, Ohio, which is just east of Dayton. Uh, it was 1980 in June. Uh, my dad was flying an ASW-20 that we owned part of with the uh, contest number of Papa Golf, mm-hmm. uh, PG. He was a 30-year Procter & Gamble vet. <laughs> just just finished 30 years, actually, that month, just a few weeks before. I was flying a, a, a new, newish LS3, and my competition number was uh, Juliet Bravo. For uh, <laughs> Actually, it was for Joe Bearden, which is my father's name. It's also my legal name, Joseph Noah Bearden III, but I've always gone by Chip. But I basically co-opted that contest number a few years earlier. And he never actually, I think he flew, might have flown one contest <laughs> under JB. Anyway, we, uh, the third day of the, of the nationals, I was in 10th place. My father was, as I recall, about halfway down the, the score sheet. And in those days down here in the U S we had 65 gliders. I think there were 67 at this contest, including a couple of, uh, international pilots. So it was a, um, it was a big contest. And uh, we took off. It was uh, – I've gone back to my notes. Some people recall it being an iffy kind of a day. I thought it was pretty good for a while. And we um, – my dad suggested that we um, we fly together because we hadn't really ever done that at a contest. And I said, sure. And uh, in my mind, I went, if you can keep up. <laughs> yeah. But um, he did. Uh, we started together. We flew together. Uh, first turn, I went out ahead and, and got really low, and he caught up. And then uh, we did the second leg, and, and part of the, the book explores that long 65 or 70-mile leg. We flew almost entirely with George Moffat, just the three of us. It was just one of those rare experiences. We were all flying very well. George was was very aggressive, leading most of the time. It was just one of those rare experiences that even if if – my dad hadn't crashed that day. Uh, I would remember it for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we got to the second turn. It was shutting down. We turned and went back towards Springfield, and it was we were basically flying into a front. But it was not a violent weather front. It was just gray, overcast, soggy. We got lower and lower, and we lost track of each other. And um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but um, I was circling at 1,000 feet or so, 900 feet. Like right, you're, in sur- you're in survival mode. I'm in survival mode. And uh, looked down and saw a glider going under me at about half my altitude. I said, gosh, where's that guy going? And um, <clears throat> to make a long story, <clears throat> pardon me, long story short, it, 
I saw the glider a few turns later. I looked out just in time to see it um, flying straight and level and then drop a wing hard, go nose down, and then do a, a fairly violent spin entry and pull out. And um, if he had another 100 feet, he would have made it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he ended up going into the ground, basically a very flat impact. I, I've since seen other accidents like that. But um, he hit with enough force that it, it killed him, I won't say on impact. He lived for another 10 minutes or so. But um, at that point, I didn't know who it was. I wasn't even sure it was a crash because the maneuver looked so startlingly smooth in a way that I said, gosh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I decided to – my temptation was to push ahead because I still had some altitude to glide out. And I was, I was highly placed. And I decided to – uh, land instead just to see if I could help. And as I ran up to the cockpit, I didn't recognize him at first. Uh, it wasn't until I looked at the contest ID on the tail and saw Papa Golf that I realized it was my dad. Wow. So um, that that's the guts of the second part of the book, that one day. Um, there are a lot of details I've left out and the aftermath and so forth. But that's that's the inciting incident, as <laughs> as novelists would say. So, for many pilots who've experienced crashes or seen friends lose their lives, you you saw your dad die gliding, uh, something you were both passionate about. What kept you going after seeing the sport that you love take your father's life? Well, that's an interesting interesting question. Um, I've tried to explore it a little bit in the book. Uh, if I were a psychologist, I might talk about, you know, my desire to uh, prove something, to live up to my dad's standards, whatever. But in, in, in truth, I didn't ever consider dropping out of flying. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just something that I did. He and I did it together. The only question was, would I be able to do it by myself with my family crewing going forward? And I went down to a, a regional contest a few months later in uh, Cordial, Georgia, mm-hmm. and flew a contest down there. And it, it felt normal, except my dad wasn't with me. So um, it wasn't until later that I started thinking, much, much later, I started thinking about the risks involved in, in what we do. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in your case, with staying with flying and gliding, other people would have said, that's it, done, finished, not gliding anymore. Possibly, or, or yeah, certainly, probably, um, in some cases, certainly. Um, when we were, when I was first starting out flying, my dad had a saying that was widely popular in soaring at that point in the 1960s. The most dangerous part of soaring is the drive to and from the airport. Which we've all heard that tired old saw, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I give a lot of safety, to, safety talks at national contests and or regionals too. And I asked for a show of hands recently. And I said, how many have heard this statement? And not every hand went up. Oh, really? A lot of the young people had never heard it before because we all know it's not true now. Yeah. But back in the 60s and 70s, even into the 80s, the most dangerous part of soaring is the drive to and from the airport. We just all accepted that as fact. Um, so I didn't really think about the risks as being um, – imposing at that mm-hmm. point in time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I, well, my list of pilots I have 
been acquainted with personally, either family, close friends, acquaintances, or people I've met at contests, uh, is up to 20 right. fatal accidents. Right. Uh, that's a lot of death and destruction. We, so yeah, now I think differently yeah. about the risks now. Which is one of the things I want to talk to you about as well, about risk management. I mean, contest flying is inherently more dangerous than, you know, getting up and doing a solo cross country. Um, but how did you manage your risk? What did you do to keep going and, and manage that risk? You had a family, you had kids, you know, you don't, you're going to make sure you come home for them as well. How did you start to manage your risk? Well, for many years, I didn't have a family and kids. Um, a few years later, uh, I guess it was 86, I got married. So this lady, six years later, I got married. We didn't have our two daughters until I was, um, until about eight years later. So yeah, it was on my mind, but I still didn't at that point think I was incurring significant risk because in addition to the most dangerous part of soaring is, is driving to and from the airport, we always said, you're not going to get hurt unless you make a mistake. Right. And I felt like, although I certainly am not the most skillful pilot in the world, I always felt like I'm not going to make those kinds of mistakes. The deadly mistake, the dumb a mistake. A deadly mistake, yeah. yeah. I made many dumb mistakes in my life, including in flying, but I felt like I just wasn't going to make a mistake that would put my life at risk. So I was just very careful, especially after my dad crashed. You know, what um, is it with us pilots in a way that, you know, I've lost friends as well and seen things happen. But we always go, what happened and why? And then it sort of helps us analyze it. And then emotionally, you kind of put some ice on it and move forward once you figured out what went wrong. And then you kind of think to yourself in, in many e cases. Exactly. The first reaction is we want to know why, yeah. how. And then if we can process that and say, OK, I'll never do that, then most of us push on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what I did for many, many years. Now you talk about pushing on. What I liked about your book as well is that you talk about other passions, you know, running is a big passion for you, gliding, obviously family, but you write about your, your life as a, more as a glider pilot, but all these other things that interested you as well, which I found really interesting, the parallels between your gliding and your running, your marathon running. Yeah, I have to say that the marathon running, I suspect, came about for the same reason as my as my flying. Uh, when I was growing up, I was not an athlete by any means. I I made grades. Uh, I was a smart kid, but I didn't I didn't do really do any sports, which in this country at the time was not the way to be popular. Well, and even my dad, now I think you know if you're not on the football yeah, team, you're not. It's uh, yeah. it's it's changed a lot, but. Yeah. Uh, in contrast, my father coming up had not only been very smart, I think he was valedictorian or salutatorian in a small class down in Alabama, but he's also a three-letter man. He played baseball, basketball, and football, okay. quarterback. So I felt like I was living in his shadow most of my adolescence, and flying helped me emerge from that shadow. When I got into running and ran my first marathon, that really brought me out into my own. So I'd say most of my adult life, I've been running marathons and flying gliders in part because that's what it took to make me feel like I was a complete person. And that was your goal setting part of your brain. 
Yes. Initially, it was just, could I run a marathon? And then it became, I need you know, run another one. Can I get faster? Eventually, it turned into, can I qualify for the Boston Marathon, which I finally did after many, many tries. Um, I ran my, what will probably be my last marathon in November of 2023 um, in Philadelphia. It was my slowest ever by a huge margin. I just wanted to finish. My goal there was to finish running, not walking. And most of us Which have I, never run a marathon. So and you, <laughs> you've run dozens of them. So good for you. It's up. It got, well, that will be number 47 wow. and, um, uh, I'm, I'm done. I'm pretty sure. Uh, don't, don't check back with me this year later, but I'm pretty well convinced that was it. And part of the reason is I'm getting older, but the other reason is I'm just a lot more confident and happy with myself than I ever was at an earlier point in my life. I don't need those validations anymore. Right. But it'll be tough to it'll be tough to give up flying when the time comes. Yeah, it could be this year. It could be ten years from now. Yeah, but, depending on health and all those other things. Yeah. But it won't crush me as it might have even ten or fifteen, twenty years ago. So in your book as well, I mean, you'd been flying at least. I think I didn't take the notes on this, but three decades at least. You've been in all sorts of contests, national contests, regionals. But you finally, uh, in the last, I think, ten years or so. You finally won a day at a national contest. It was huge for you. <laughs> it was huge. Um, I was thinking you might ask me my best moment ever in soaring. <laughs> and that's that's up there with one or two others. Um, it was 19. I got into flying in 65, flew my first contest in 68. And um, 30 years later, I won a day at the Cordial 50 meter national, uh, standard class nationals in, in, um, my SW 24. And, um, basically that's something my dad and I talked about my, my doing almost from the very beginning mm -hmm. is, uh, winning a day, winning the contest, getting on the U S team. Uh, that, that was our dream. I thought it was hopelessly ambitious when I started. And then I said, well, it's possible. <clears throat> and I'd sort of given up on the dream in a way when I finally broke through and won that day. So um, I just wish he had been around to uh, to see it, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, after reading your book as well, um, would you define yourself as a glider pilot or like what comes first, a career glider pilot, the marathon running? I think without gliding, you will certainly not be the same person. No. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, that that's certainly fair to say. I'd, I'd probably add that without marathon running, I wouldn't be the same person either. Mm -hmm. um, I spend, spend some time in the book comparing and contrasting those two endeavors. Uh, they both appeal to me for some of the same reasons and some different reasons. But if you ask me to define myself, it's <clears throat> beyond obsessive compulsive. Yeah. It's probably um, goal orientation. Right. Um, I've always been motivated to do something better, uh, not necessarily national caliber, certainly not world caliber, but my, uh, my lovely ex-wife took me to task one day. She got frustrated with, at this point it was my marathon running. I was trying to qualify for Boston and which was a very difficult thing to do. And, um, I was getting hurt a lot. I was getting injured. And she said, why can't you just slow down and have fun? running the marathon. And it was the same kind of thing she said about my, my flying. I was killing myself trying to do better at the nationals and getting very frustrated. 
And I told her, I said, you know, unless I have ambitious goals and push myself, it's not fun. Hmm. Having goals makes it fun for me. Now, I think you can carry that to the extreme, but um, that would be one of the things I'd use to define myself, I guess, goal-oriented. You know, it's interesting that you, you know, there are some guys like you who love the competition flying. Um, I've flown a couple of contests. I was never a contest pilot, but I'm one of these guys that just loves taking off by himself and going all day and coming home and just can't get the smile off my face. But I'm I'm only, I guess, challenging myself a a little bit if... But for you, the con- the contest flying was your jam, right? Yeah, Harry, you say you're just flying around having fun. <sighs> I get a little frustrated. Um, last year, I think it was um, one of the guys at our club. We all we have this task that we fly a lot called the Governor's Cup, that involves a couple of triangles in New Jersey and New York. And a bunch of us went out and we completed the cup and came back. And one of the guys had gotten a late start. He basically realized about halfway around he wasn't going to finish, and he just came back. And he was kind of apologizing, saying, yeah, I wimped out. I said, John, I don't want to ever hear you say that. Um, You had fun. You made a very educated call that the risk of continuing was something that you weren't willing to incur, and you came back and you landed safely. Mm -hmm. That's great. Whatever soaring is to you is – is great. It doesn't mean that we all have to have the same thing, find the same things in soaring, but soaring means very different things to different pilots. Yes, I I don't have fun unless I'm flying a contest or practicing seriously for one. Right. But it doesn't mean that that's right. It just means that's the way my mind works. Now, you're still flying contests. I am. Uh, I flew a couple of nationals last year and regional. I'm planning on, I'd like to do the same thing this year. Um, obviously age is a factor. So uh, endurance has become an issue, but so far so good. Talk to me a bit about that, about age and being aware of it and still flying. You're obviously in good shape, but you pay attention to it, your age. I do. Well, it's hard. It's hard not to. Um, I think up until probably about five years ago, I had this idea in the back of my head that if I kept on running marathons, I, I could live forever. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I lift too in the in the gym. Uh, one of the things I didn't explore in the book was a parallel thread about powerlifting. Um, but I I felt like I was in great shape. And um, turns out when you get to a certain age, and it's different ages for different people. Oh, um, now I can really hear that you're in New York. Yes. Sorry. Tell <laughs> no, me if no, you want it's me to fine. It's the reality. Yeah. Uh, my daughters both live in New York, and uh, one of them and her husband have an apartment up here on West 94th Street. So that's where I'm doing the, the call from. Um, it's it's just undeniable now. Um, I used to take my glider apart every night, put it in the trailer. I mean, we're talking like for decades. Yeah, and that's hard and work. Now, and now, unless there's – well, it's less work for an ASW24 than a lot of the newer gliders. But um, now, unless there's weather – on the forecast, um, especially since I have polyurethane wings, I just tie it down. Right. It's just too much work to, to put it together and take it apart. Um, I decided to fly the Mifflin, Pennsylvania, uh, standard class nationals last year. I'd never been there before. And, uh, I expressed concern to a couple of my buddies saying, Hey, I'm talking about flying the nationals. And a few weeks later, the Wordsboro, New York regionals are, 
I'm concerned about flying a lot of days. And they said, oh, don't worry. At Mifflin, we never fly every day. Uh, You're going to have rain and and not good weather. Don't worry about it. Well, we flew all but one day. (laughs) And that's hard, hard, hard work. It really is. Mentally, physically. It it really is, mentally and physically. And um, by the end of the contest, I was was very tired. Um, The the nationals I flew later on in the summer up in Dansville, New York, was more like a typical U.S. contest, uh, East East Coast contest, in that Mm -hmm. we flew about half the time. But it was hotter weather, and I still felt it. So there's the physical component, and then you mentioned mentally – I'm 72. I know I'm not the same person I was mentally, say, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. probably even five years ago. Um, I'm going to interrupt there just for a sec, but it's a balance, right? So maybe you're not quite as fast as you used to be, but you also have a lot more experience. So, you know, there's a, a happy compromise between all of these skills and experience that we have, right? There is, and there have been a lot of books written about that, about uh, judgment, and uh, the trick is to acquire judgment before you do something really stupid and kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, and I like I like to think I've done that. Uh, I'm certainly not as aggressive as I used to be. I think I've landed out at contests in fields maybe once in the last six, seven years. Okay. It, happen- it happened actually at Mifflin when I fell off the ridge on the day that a lot of us landed out. Uh, it's not that I, I'm unwilling to. It's just I know that's a very high-stress time in our sport. And um, – I just am more careful now to sure give yourself to options. not push the point. Give myself options. Doesn't mean I'm not willing to go out there and land off the airport. It just means I know it's particularly stressful, and I just soon keep those that exposure to a minimum right. wherever I can. So th- this gets back to this discussion of risk management. We, you know, you've touched upon losing lots of friends. I've lost people over the years. And what it does to our psyche as pilots, how dangerous do you really think it is compared to motorcycle riding or other things and other friends that have different occupations? But give us an idea of what you've thought about, about risk. Well, I don't have to, um, I thought I had it queued up here. Oh, here we go. There's a website. Um, called Chess in the Air. And one of the articles I really looked at very carefully was something called The Risk of Dying Doing What We Love. And I, right. I actually mentioned, I quote from that. Um, the link is in the book. You can find it. Google it. Right. I, I've, I've, I've chatted with him. He's a lovely guy. Um, okay, great. Yeah. Um, I I didn't see anything in that list of relative risks that I, I particularly disagree with. It. I had some surprises. Um the one that – what he, what he does is he basically using uh, – on a per hours of exposure basis, he compares commercial airlines travel, which is about the safest thing you can do, to a bunch of other things. Driving driving is four times as risky as flying on a commercial airliner. Cycling, uh, marathon running, which is 17 times as risky as um, – the risk, risk of dying as, as flying on a commercial airliner, which I, I'm not sure I agree with, but I – can't argue with the statistics. Um, he says flying sailplanes is 200 times as risky as flying a commercial airliner. I can't argue with that because no, I don't have the data. All right. Yeah. The one that surprised me was it's twice as dangerous or twice as risky as motorcycling, which I wouldn't have thought to be true. Um, 
it's also not as risky as skydiving. Um, I, this safety talk that I have given multiple times, I typically had a few people in the audience who both are skydivers or ex-skydivers as well as scuba divers. And they have both all assured me that that soaring is more dangerous than either one of those activities. And his data say that's not true. Yeah, you, soaring you, is, is twice as dangerous as scuba diving, but it's half as dangerous, half as risky as skydiving. So, you know, all that stuff is interesting, those stats. And I think the, the main thing that I came away from your book as well, because I'm a fairly, I'm a cautious pilot. I, I'm risk management. I look at what the weather's doing. I, I always look at all these different things. But and I've I also scuba dive and I've gone skydiving and all I've done okay. all these things. Okay. But but the thing More is, it's risk management in all of these things. You know, I, I've been on a dive before where some you know the dive master go, hey, why don't we go touch a hundred feet? You know, and then come back up. And I'm going, well, I'm a novice and I've only trained to sixty feet and. I don't care about touching a hundred feet. <laughs> it's got more risk and I, I don't have the, the, really the training for a lot of this stuff. So I think, and that's what I enjoyed about reading your book as well about analyzing risk and for each individual based on experience, knowledge, a lot of it is different. I mean, you've, you lost a, a friend in the book that you talk about. They couldn't get a toe in one area. They were testing a, a, a glider, so they went to another airfield, took off in really strong winds, I gather, under a behind a low-power tow plane. Anyway, it all went to shit. And uh, again, that's a perfect story of all sorts of, you know, the, the Swiss cheese model and risk yeah. management, right? Really experienced yeah, that was, guys. That was uh, our uh, Robbie Robertson, hmm. uh, adopted U.S. pilot. He's from England originally was my best friend at the time. He had just won the U.S. national contest, and a few weeks later, he was killed in a freak accident. Um, but was it yeah. a freak accident, if you, if you, if you peel it back? Well, if you peel it back, um, I, I say freak in the sense of that combination of circumstances doesn't happen very often. High gross weight, marginal weather, lower Let, powered let's tow wait, plane. Let's just wait for that fire engine to pass. Oh, okay. and it did. There we go. All right. Um, not freak in the sense that it could never happen again. I think if you were to put those, that combination of circumstances together, it might happen a lot more often than, than we think. It's just, most of us would never encounter a situation like that. Mm -hmm. Or if we did, we would choose not to fly. Right. Right. You have spent a lot of time thinking about this. You give the talks on- Even though talking about national, national champions- yeah. What, what, I'm sorry. What, what advice would you have for pilots, both guys who are or young men and women who are starting out in, in gliding or aviation in general, with all the years you've got behind you with working in aviation or not working, but but flying? What do you have any advice for people starting out and how to manage risk? Um, I actually. <laughs> the guts of, of one of my safety talks is about the concept of risk management. You've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, I come from a corporate background and we have all these little diagrams we can draw about, uh, it's, it's the consequences of something happening and the probability of something happening. And in corporate risk management, you focus first on the things that are going to hurt you the most. Um, and typically those are high probability and high consequences. Um, in soaring, we, we do that pretty well. Uh, we, we try to avoid the really stupid stuff. 
sometimes where I feel like people fall down is we don't think enough of the things that are not very likely, but have enormous consequences. Right. Um, those are the ones that, I mean, in the corporate world, if you make a mistake, very unlikely, even the consequences are it's going to cost your company a million dollars. That's naturally bad from a risk management perspective. But in soaring, if you make a small mistake, but the consequences are you die, yeah. that's the that's the end of the world. Yeah. And those are the ones I feel like we don't don't necessarily think through very well. Or we say, okay, I understand that those are really dangerous things, like not getting slow on the turn to final, but it can't happen to us. Yeah. Well, I won't make that mistake. But, but that's just it, right? It can happen to us. <laughs> it can. Yeah. Um, that list of 20 pilots, um, there's some really big names on that list, including yeah. world champions. Yeah. But, you know, it's a, it, I loved reading your book because it, it takes me through many of your ups and downs, losing friends, the, the exhilaration of our sport, the reward of our sport, and Mother Nature seeing it out the cockpit window. It, I, I felt like I was flying along with you on, in some of the chapters. And it, it really <laughs> came you. alive. Thank you. Um, one of the questions I raise, and not don't really answer it all that well, I think, is if I had known earlier what I know now, about the risks of soaring, would I have continued to do it? Not just after my family arrived, but even before then. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't have a good answer for that one because we, we, you and I have both talked about risk a lot here and risk management. We haven't talked much about the reward side. Right. right. Um, you've talked about your scuba diving, going from 60 down to 100 feet. If the reward had been a lot higher, you might have gone down to touch 100 feet. Yeah, maybe. I think in your yeah. mind, you said, you know, it's not worth that much to me. The yeah. risk is high and the reward isn't high enough. But if you'd, if you'd, if there were a million dollar check waiting down there for you, you might have gone. Um, so the rewards of soaring have been substantial enough for me over the years that I, I think I probably would have continued to, well, <laughs> I'm still flying now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my, my daughters are both, they just turned 30. So I haven't had infants in a long time, but um, it's still worth the exposure to me. It's worth the risk. Um, but I, I think about I it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think about risk, not all the time with gliding, but during the winter. And then when the spring comes, I do all sorts of things to mitigate my risk, you know, reading up on the yeah. POH again, going through my mind of what can go wrong, how I would handle it, all these sorts of things. That's That just becomes part of being an, an older, more experienced pilot, I think. Well, that's that's how you have to approach it. It's certainly the way I, I do now. Um, it's having contingency plans so that you don't have to come up with a solution if something happens. I I account, I account recount an incident out in Nephi, Utah, a few years ago at the Nationals where I had a contingency plan. I just didn't follow it. And it cost me an expensive repair job on my wing. But, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, recognizing that uh, – you're not going to be the same pilot you were in the spring if you haven't flown for six months. It's having contingency plans in place. It's paying attention to um, critical assembly checks when you put your glider together. Right. Again, the details, right? It's the details that will kill you. It's just so easy, especially after 60 years, to take some of that stuff for granted. You know, I, I'm probably more cognizant of it than now than I, I ever was before. 
I wound up um, interviewing a F-14 pilot, an American guy, Navy guy. He had the most hours of anybody in an F-14 and, you know, hundreds of carrier landings, all that sort of stuff. Um, Air Force or air show performer. Anyway, he died a few years ago and I single engine aircraft taking off and I think he forgot to take the gust lock out. You know, here's somebody that's an aviation god and it's the little thing that killed him. I have a um, full-page, uh, letter-size, A4, whatever you want to call it, two columns, uh, written checklist that I use. Uh, I use it more in contest than in my round-the-airport flying, although I, I refer to it every time. I just check it off manually with the pen at contest because I just don't trust myself to remember everything on that list every time I fly. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, in the old days I had a checklist, it was maybe a dozen items and I just sort of, you know, let my thumb slide down the list. Now I check them off. Um, there's just too much that can go wrong and it's the little things that often kill you. So the book reading it, and we talked about this just before we started the interview is that it's about gliding. It's about a bit about your career, although I, I get the sense that, you know, your marathon running and your gliding were far more important to you in your life <laughs> than your career. Um, but it's a really interesting read because it, it gives you your, you know, the last 50 years of your your life and the things you enjoyed and challenges. And and that's what makes it a good read. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, um, I basically had to decide in the last few years whether to write just about the flying and the running, or actually really about just about the flying, the flying and the running, or to include a lot more of the details about the impact those have had on my, on my life, my marriage, relationships. Um, and I decided to depart from the course that probably most soaring or flying authors choose. And I included a lot of things because, you know, our lives are complicated and soaring and running are so bound up and who I am and what I've been through that there is difficult to, to pull those things out. So yeah, there's a lot in there that, that does directly relate to flying and running, but it's, it, I think it helps. It certainly helped me understand myself better. Yeah. And it helps tell the story. And for, from a reader's perspective, it, it gives me an idea of your life, you know, your children and traveling with your daughter to a contest. It's, it's, it's just great little stories and all of those stories put together and the story about your dad, uh, of course, Goodbye Papa Gulf. Now we understand why it has that title. Um, very poignant. Right. So, Chip, t- talk to me about the, the reasons behind writing this autobiography. Well, there are a lot of reasons for writing a memoir. And I, I tried to write them down and, and figure out which one applied to me. Uh, money is one, except that's not going to happen in, in soaring entertainment. I don't have enough good stories like a George Moffat or a Helmut Reichman to write a book of soaring stories um, to answer a question, uh, maybe to give advice to other people. Um, ego, because you think other people want to learn about you. But one of the big ones that was certainly true in my case was was therapy. Mm-hmm. I had all these stories, all these events in my life. I knew where I had started. I knew where I am now. And I needed to connect the dots. And forcing myself to go back and relive these stories, these times, the, the good the ones and the bad ones. Dad's death. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and think about how I felt after that, 
to answer some of the questions you asked me, why did I continue flying even after that? The therapy aspect was a big reason why I not only wrote the book, but went in the direction I did. Mm-hmm. Tried to explore not just the flying and the running stories, but the um, the story of personal growth. Yeah. How I got where I am now, because I'm a lot happier about with myself now than I ever was before. And that comes through in the book, which I found that part of the journey was interest, extremely interesting as well. So, uh, yeah, again, thanks for writing the book. It was, uh, I, w- I would say it was my pleasure, except it was <laughs> a lot of work, a lot of work, as you, as you well know. Yeah. Um, I did a lot when I was still working, but I retired in spring of 2021. So what, two and a half years ago, uh, no, three and a half years ago. And I've been working on it almost nonstop ever yeah, so since then. So at least a thousand hours, at least. Oh, much more. I have, I have several hundred drafts on my hard drive right now. Wow. And, um, anyway, it was, a another 50,000 words I trimmed out of it. It's already a long, a long work, but, um, no, it was, it was a labor of love, but also a lot of work, Yeah, but and the effort uh, was worth it, it was worth it for me. It was worth it for me. I hope other people agree. Um, I'll recommend to my friends and listeners to read this book. So now you have to tell us where do we get it? How do we get it? Um, it's on Amazon. Um, I don't have the link in front of me, but if you Google uh, Goodbye Papa Golf or my name and Amazon, you'll find it pretty quickly. Okay. Um, it is it is available in Canada. Um, I'm sure you have fans around the world. It's available anywhere that Amazon uh, sells uh, books. Uh, it's also Which is essentially the world now, so that's good. Yeah. It's, it's only in English, unfortunately, but I suppose if thousands of people start crying out that it should be translated to German or French or Italian or whatever, Spanish, we'd find a way to do it. Somebody um, can, it's, or, or we'll plug it through an AI machine. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different subject I want to get into yeah. right now. Um, it's also available from the Throwing Society of America. Okay, good. Uh, they have generously decided to add it to their list, and they're selling it now. So, uh, and I have plans to make it a little bit more available. Right now, Amazon's your best shot. It is in uh, print as well as uh, ebook form, Kindle or any ebook form. Oh, speaking it's also of which, I'm going to interrupt just for a second. That I I read the ebook version, and I love the old Kodachrome uh, slides. I gather <laughs> that have been scanned and are part of this because it's just the color saturation of those older photos. It, it reminds me of you know, my father's slideshows when I was a kid. You know, it's funny. You're not the first person uh, to mention that. And I guess I, I've seen these slides so many times. It doesn't even register on me, but yeah, my dad was a photographer nut and uh, everything he took in the old days was Kodachrome. Yeah. It's cool. I, I, I could tell right away. And I, I really enjoyed looking at those photographs. I looked at them carefully. Yeah. One of the things I had to do was go through between my photos, mostly atronic, and and his photos all on slides with some some early black and white prints, probably four or five thousand photographs, which isn't a lot these days. But but to go through them one by one, saying okay, this might work for the book, this won't. It right. it took some time, especially all of his were tucked away in different boxes and files and so forth. It took me a long time to arrange those in order. Well, Chip, I got, I got to say it was worth it. Thank you for writing this book. And uh, taking us along on that journey as, as those of us who've had the pleasure of reading it. So thanks again. And uh, hopefully we'll chat again at some point in the future. Harry, thank you so much for the chance to talk about the book. And um, maybe we will. 
Okay. And maybe I'll see you out east at a contest or something. I hope so. Okay, Chip. Take care. Good luck with your own flying. Cheers. Bye. Bye for now. Chip Bearden is the author of Goodbye Papa Golf, a story about gliding and a story about life. It's available online. Just search for Goodbye Papa Golf. Should have checked Skysight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. Skysight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last-minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out Skysight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. That's it for episode number 45 of The Thermal. I will be back again early February with another show that will include an interview with Monique Taylor, the author of Suicide Jockeys, the story of American combat glider pilots in World War II. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>